He's white. In honor of Priscilla, who is your favorite entertainer spouse? Not to a Southern accent explain you, Dave. It's really more like he's white. He's white. It goes on for about 30 seconds in my memory of the movie Elvis. <laughs> Uh, I'm Katie Rich, and I'm in with- which nothing goes on for longer than it absolutely needs to. Oh, absolutely not, master of restraint. Um, I'm Katie Rich. I'm going with Dolly Parton's husband, Carl Dean. They got married in 1966. He basically never shows up anywhere in public. But then in her book that she released a couple years ago, she had a bunch of pictures of him young, and he's just like smoking hot. So she's like, "Yeah, I'm not gonna let you see him, but he's real hot, and he's at home with me. So good <laughs> on you, Dolly and Carl." I am at patches. I just realized I did not mentally prepare for this lightning round question, but right <laughs> shooting from the hip, I'm thinking Courtney Love, Kurt Cobain. They were married, so I'll go with Courtney Love, who is a performer in her own right and kind of a badass lady. Yeah. All right. All right. Uh, hey, it's me, David the Seven. I'm going with Florence Balcom, who is the uh, widow of Bram Stoker, and she's the one who sold the rights to the play. And uh, made that bag for herself. She made the Dracula money. Girl boss. Uh, um, I am David Ehrlich. And I think this is probably a little bit of a stretch, but uh, especially because their marriage was short lived and has been over for a very long time. But I recently watched the Mimi Rogers vehicle, The Rapture on the Criterion channel at friend of the pod, Marie Abardi's uh, recommendation. Part of Criterion Channel's uh, 90s horror series that was on the site in October. I don't know if it still is. I watched it on Halloween Eve. Uh, that movie is fucking insane. Um, <laughs> it's truly, I, I, I mean, I. Wait, who's never, in it? Who, who are we talking Mimi about? Rogers, who, who was married to Tom Cruise? Um, uh, wait, and did say, oh, entertainer. Sorry, I misunderstood the question. I thought that Tom Cruise didn't count. Carry on. Tom Cruise counts in all categories. That's true. Uh, for your consideration in all categories, including <laughs> this one. Uh, I mean, that, I, I really am just bringing this up to proselytize about uh, The Rapture, uh, which is it moves like basically no other movie I've ever seen before. It has a young David Duchovny who has one of the most insane character arcs over the span of like 25 minutes that you will ever see in your entire life. Um, wild, wild, wild movie. And also like Lars von Trier levels of despair. Yikes. Anyway, Mimi Rogers, Tom Cruise, what a couple. Halloween. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good. Then, well then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's a podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room. It's episode 449 and a half. That's right. It's that time again. Uh, It is the week of Wednesday, November 1st. That's the day that in 1512, Michelangelo's paintings of the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel in the Vatican were first exhibited. That really (sighs) is. Do they they hold up? Do you think? Have have you ever been to the Sistine Chapel? No, I've never been to the Sistine Chapel. Yeah. Wait, I have been to the Sistine Chapel. They're they're pretty. Yeah. Pretty rad, I gotta say. What, why like are they rad? The Chapel. And you go more like you I do mean, look up. Am I right? Oh, I mean, I mean they're really beautiful, and you have yep. to stand and look directly up. So you're like bending your neck, and so there's this like your your blood is rushing in your head in a weird way, which mm. I think makes them look more beautiful. I don't know, Dave. You have smarter art critique there. They're anatomically accurate, despite the fact that they're viewed from a very specific angle and were painted while he was on his back, like six inches from it. So I'm getting that it's... they have big dongs and uh, Katie asphyxiated <laughs> herself while looking at them. And this is a whole uh, sexual yeah. experience. What, what makes you not want to go to Vatican it sounds, City? Basically? It sounds pretty great. I mean, and the iconic shooting location of Mission Impossible 3. <laughs> which yeah. is what the Vatican Most, is known best, for more than anything known. else. Yeah, yeah, I would uh-huh. say so. The da Vinci Code also put that in there. And Angels and Demons. And, oh yeah, is that the one where they go to the? Yeah, that's the Vatican, I, the Vatican I, City I, one. I, I don't remember. How dare you not know your Dan for Brown's. a new pope? Well, Doesn't then. he fall out of a helicopter or something on the oh, Vatican? Also, I mean, the thing. Sissy Chapel has seen in the two popes, my favorite movies. So. Yeah, sure. <laughs> put that out there. But the thing about the Vatican is that I have never been anywhere where the architecture is more inviting to an action movie. Like, all I could do walking around the Vatican would think about what incredible set pieces could be staged. Like, what gun um, you could use to shoot down what the candelabras. Oh, my gosh. Why, why you got to take it there? But just, just chases, 
jumping the candelabras uh, on around as weapons yeah yeah a lot of jewels you can take hostage so (laughs) here we are it is a half episode i guess we'll get to the end of this and maybe tease what we're up to uh but for now we have two app reviews and one email so david i guess we'll start with you in the app reviews sure we will uh yeah, of course. Um, yeah. You're, ready. You're ready for this. It was ready. Uh, from, from T Steps with a Z, because it's cooler that way. Great show, five stars. I love this podcast because it features great banter and insightful discussion on all the new releases. I love all the hosts, but I was first introduced to this show because I'm a massive fan of David Ehrlich's annual year end of year video countdown. So boy. I look forward to them every year and think David does a fantastic job of editing them all. My question to David is what are the chances that we get a needle drop of Mariah Carey's Always Be My Baby layered over top of 2023 releases such as Anatomy of a Fall? Anyways, thank you for the great podcast and keep up the good work. Love, is Max. Always be my, love. Is Always Be love, My Baby in a movie that I haven't seen yet? I love that song. It's classic. And it's, uh, it has a rather, uh, dare I say, iconic appearance in Bo is Afraid. Ah, which I haven't seen um, <laughs> Speaking of giant yeah. dongs. Uh, well, yeah, uh, real girthy. Um, also, I, for for reasons related to uh, this listener's question, I was just freeze framing through a particular sequence of Bo is Not Afraid, uh, where Joaquin Phoenix is running naked around the streets of Montreal, and it's something that I don't think it's really easy to catch when you're watching it at regular speed is the character's giant prosthetic balls, which yes, he he's wearing for reasons that become obvious as the plot goes along. But uh, I mean, these are things that you could—they're like. A split second gag, but while freeze framing it, I was laughing very loud to myself. Um, freeze framing Joaquin Phoenix's yeah. balls. Um, I, yeah, I, I, every year I fall further and further behind in editing this video. Um, I, 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 I'm right now in a point where I cannot possibly imagine being done with it by early January, but uh, hopefully it'll still happen. Uh, but spoiler alert. Yeah, I mean, Mariah Carey's always been my baby is definitely in there. It is not over footage of Anatomy of a Fall. But uh, if you think hard about it, I'm sure you can put together what movies might pair well with that song. Anatomy um, of a Fall what also songs lends might itself. pair well with Anatomy of a Fall? Well, Anatomy of a Fall also provides its own nah, iconic nah, pop nah, song to you the right uh, there. conversation. Nah, if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> oh, well, yeah. I, we can talk about, I mean, the, you're talking about the... P-I-M-P. P-I-M-P. Yeah, cover. yeah, yeah. 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 Um, great, great song. Uh, very good film. Andrew J. Eisenman says, great show about movies. A thought on Ehrlich's take on No One Will Save You. Everyone's real Ehrlich build tonight. Hey, y'all. Fairly new listener, longtime fan of Ehrlich's writing, Katie Rich's Twitter, who can't remember if you learned about the podcast from Little Gold Men or Blank Check, but it was probably one of those. It may have been uh, our Times Square billboard, I think. Andrew. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm sorry we went bankrupt we... off of that, but it was worth it. <laughs> We got a lot of listeners from that. And it's not one of the electronic billboards that you can just replace the, the <laughs> click of a button. Yeah, we glued it up there ourselves, right? Yeah, <laughs> we did. We had Dave wearing his Miles Morales costume, a spider up there, and um, <laughs> while he was in New York three weeks ago. It's very small. <laughs> you can look for it. Anyway, Patches and Dave, you all seem cool. The show's great, and it's been accompanying me on my hopefully temporary stint working a night shift job. So thank you. People should listen to this, but I'm really writing in to revisit Ehrlich's comment about body snatching and no one will save you in episode 446. I love a reference, a numerical reference to a previous episode. It makes our show feel so canonical. Uh, I mean, we do say the happens, number at the beginning of every we episode. We do, but it's so rare that anyone uh, it's to, you know, take, puts in the effort to, do to that. be listening at that point, you know? <laughs> your take seems to involve them not body snatching proper because I think this is going to involve spoilers for the Hulu film. No one will save you. Uh, (laughs) Listeners may want to jump ahead about a minute or so. If uh, that is something they don't want to hear. Uh, They create a new version of their victims. If you remember back to the two most iconic body snatchers films, 56 and 78, that is how they work. The pods infect you while you sleep and they grow a new you. I'm not bringing this up to nitpick, but to say that this distinction is what makes no one will save you such a moving piece of genre fiction in my eyes. The reason the body snatcher pods replace the body is so that the films can debate the worth of the soul, or whatever you want to call the essential elements that make us human beyond memory and intelligence. By retaining this element of the body snatching, including an alienified human clone, versus infecting a person like many modern entries in the genre do, Duffield uses the intertextuality of genre to drive the very power 
of the ending, also rare to get a review that uses the word intertextuality. Um, so thanks again for that. Of course, like you said, this storytelling mechanism allows her to defeat the version of herself that she wishes she was, but more importantly, by allowing Dever to live, the film states that her soul has not been ruined by her past and is worthy of preservation, while the townsfolk's rejection of her, even when she tried to warn them, has cost them theirs. More than simply inverting the genre, Duffield sharpens it. My two cents. Well, very, very well put and argued. Um, uh, maybe during your day hours away from your night shift job, you should work as a film critic. Uh, yeah, good movie. Yeah. No one will save you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for writing a review. That's Andrew J. Eisenman. We are fighting in the war room. You can leave us a review on iTunes. We just read them. Or apparently, because this is a half show or whatever, we're also going to read some email reviews. Dave, what do you got? Yeah, you can email us at fitwr.podcast at gmail.com. Uh, like this personally subject of the email is take your five stars, please. Esteemed War Room Correspondents, I followed the link on your hilariously outdated website to try to leave you an official Apple podcast review. I think you could see how that worked out for me. Bad UI, no biscuit. <laughs> <laughs> I do oh, not no. make the Apple Podcasts UI, but our, our website is hilariously outdated because I keep being worried if I update it, I'm going to break something and we lose like 600 episodes. Um, I like this podcast. Katie remains my favorite because of course she does. Patches and David seem to have a real love-hate thing going on. And Dave seems like your chill friend who's largely content to watch the other lads' shenanigans and comment wryly. Sure, it's fun yeah. when the whole complement of hosts are present. But part of the fun is hearing subsets of hosts get a little weird without the regular formula and even occasional guests, some of whom are even gasp women would recommend. <laughs> While I expect there's nothing especially fine uh, or original in those thoughts, what's driving me crazy is David and occasionally others calling Musk's little fascism factory X. It is not X and never will be. <laughs> it remains Twitter.com. So please stop giving this corporate welfare queen fail son what he wants. <laughs> Call it what it literally is, twitter.com. After all, that's how we all remember it, isn't it? And please ask your cl clever friends to do the same. Thank you most sincerely, mm. Lee. Mm. I'm I mean, I hope uh, that when I refer to it as X at the end of every show, you can hear the, 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 the venom and the sarcasm yeah. you know, dripping from my voice. Um, but I mean, I X. The, the copy editor brain says it is literally not twitter.com it is x it's true now, we we but how long it as x formally known as and so the does my phone is... i i don't know if you've ever uh, do you guys uh wear like airpods and does your iphone read text messages to you and if someone sends yeah, me a link well, it actually sometimes. it actually says x formally known as twitter thank you siri yeah where oh, I was somewhere. Advanced power there. The question is, how long is the New York Times, every time they have to refer to Twitter or X, going to call it X, the site formerly known as Twitter? Like, for how long does that period last before they simply refer to it as X in the hopes that people I know what they're talking about? Or is X, X such a catastrophically business. bad until name? Until X goes out of business, <laughs> right, which could that, be like, they any they minute can't now. They can just insert the, level, the letter X into an article without explaining what it is meant to be. Yeah, well, I swear. <laughs> you could leave, you could send us emails at fitwr.podcast at gmail.com. And if you could best the AI uh, in the Apple Podcast app. And uh, yeah, we'll read them on the show. That's what just happened. I'm currently looking at Matt Patches wearing an HBO hoodie. So when I started arguing with him before we started recording about the future of HBO, I want it clear explain. that he's been bought and paid for by uh, Richard Plepler's ghost itself. Um, no, Patches, you went and saw Casey Boys, the current CEO of uh, HBO, go talk about what else coming up at I HBO did. today as I we record this. I actually got out of my um, house and went to the dreaded Hudson Yards in New York City. Where I almost saw you was, for that, even though picketing. I had no reason to go, yeah. just because uh, of the Casey Ploys scandal. <laughs> like, this morning, I almost RCP'd. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm which like, we, we can maybe... Most people listening to this probably 
saw the thing where Casey Blaze like asked his employees to create uh, sock puppet Twitter accounts to tweet at critics who made him mad, which is really funny. As Casey um, said as, too, I mean, this is not a defense. Well, actually, Casey, so your your Casey, personal friend, boy. Casey. Yeah, my boy. Uh, mm-hmm. As Casey Blaze said, your boys. Yeah, my boys. Oh, <laughs> too late for that. Um, at the top of the thing, he obviously had to address that mini scandal. Uh, that Rolling Stone called him out on. And um, what was weird about his description there was that he blamed the pandemic and being trapped at home for wanting to like yell at critics with fake Twitter accounts. Um, but then said he doesn't do it anymore. And now he just DMs them. And uh, and he yep. thinks that's healthier. And I'm like, nothing about this that's is healthy. That's... Log off no. Twitter. Log X, off formerly X. known as Twitter, please. <laughs> um, don't do that. But the he's... karmic retribution of that story being published the night before Casey yep. Bloys was scheduled to make a rare appo- a rare personal appearance in front of a room full of journalists. Uh, Including the journalists he tweet like yes. Dr. Yes. Van Arendt and Alan Seppel while her name to that piece were there in person, which is really funny. Oh, it was funny. <laughs> anyway, what the point that we wanted to talk about that we argued about before is like what the future of HBO has in store. And it's not even just the future of HBO. I mean, going to this event and thinking about a lot of things that I, I talk to people at, at Polygon all the time about and, and what I think about is, is mostly what all these streamers, the kind of existential crisis for them, which is not competing with each other and trying to have the best television shows but to make people interested in television in the, for, the, for the prolonged future. Um, you know, we spend a lot of time worrying about movies going extinct, which I don't think they are. Um, but I, I worry more about, like, TV just becoming absolute worst. And I feel like it's trending that way. And that, they're, and that the people in charge, Easy Voice being one of them, are not really doing anything about it. So obviously... At this presentation, this was a, a, a preview of the 2024 slate. And to give you an idea of what that includes, House of the Dragons is coming back in early summer. Uh, we, we're getting a new season of True Detective in, in January. We're getting a Batman spinoff starring Colin Farrell's Penguin in a show called The Penguin. That's coming later this year. Um, there's some not IP-driven things that HBO is doing. There's a new Armando... Yanucci show called The Franchise, which is a is a spoof of comic book movies and like behind the scenes satire of making basically a big dumb Marvel movie, um, even while they do make their own IP cash in shit at HBO, which I think is funny or, or Max. I should be proper here because Casey Bloyce would say it's not HBO. It's Max. HBO is just one of the brands as part of Max, which to his <laughs> point, there's a whole nother subsection of max that they were touting at this thing driven by the magnolia network are you guys familiar oh, yeah. with chip uh oh and of course Gaines and what's his wife's name uh joanna joanna Gaines. they have a an empire that they're building that's not just the discovery shows now they have a they're trying to do like whole like wholesome family content one of their shows coming in 2024 is called human versus hamster i cool. don't even want to tell you what that's about but um is it just a, that Simpsons episode? What is the where Simpsons Lisa episode? Tries to, Lisa tries to figure out there's a hamster that's smarter than Bart, and uh, the hamster keeps <laughs> yes, doing better. I guess it Bart. is that Simpsons episode. Richard Gere is harrowing. Um, <laughs> so many early 90s hamster jokes. We're, we're not getting other shows that have been announced, like White Lotus Season 3 and Welcome to Dairy, the It spinoff. That's going to come in... 2025, but if you're waiting for like the Arliss, oh, I thought reboot, it was a it's Dairy Girl spinoff. Yeah, and no. was- <laughs> I definitely also thought it was a Dairy, dairy. Girl. No, nope, welcome to Dairy. Dairy is the it town. Um, there's or a lot it, going dairy on. Dairy Girls crossover at 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 Max, and um, but when I had the chance to ask Casey a question with all the things I'm thinking about at Polygon and and kind of younger people, I you got I, to talk to the Casey boys. I got wow. to shout at him from the rafters. And without him sliding into your DMs. Yeah, no, no Twitter required. X, formerly known as Twitter. Uh, I mean, he's definitely listening to this podcast, right? Given oh, his habits yeah. of uh, searching yeah. names, <laughs> following don't, all don't mentions of himself please, and his media. Uh, <laughs> no, I think my big question and what I'm curious, what we were yelling at each other about before the podcast, Katie, why you wanted to talk about this, is because I asked, why aren't there shows? Why aren't there visible attempts to cater or at least reach? younger audiences with this slate at all 
what what I found kind of enlightening about the Casey Bloys controversy, where he's yelling at the Alan Sepinwalls, the critic from Rolling Stone, and all these kind of older TV critics, is that what he cares about is if these older TV critics care about his old man television, and that a lot of the slate, while poor Quadrant and and certainly you know, familiar IP trying to extend that HBO brand, that prestige brand, you know, it makes sense for HBO. What it doesn't make sense to me as someone who spends a lot of time thinking about how, you know, at Polygon, we don't talk about whether people like which shows will our younger audience watch. It's really, will they watch television at all? Will they turn off Twitch and TikTok and, and YouTube and or put down the video game or like stop watching old television shows for nostalgic or like ironic reasons like will they actually watch a new television show and i don't see hbo or any of the other streamers reaching out to gen z to convert them into television watchers the only thing that's on the hbo slate for next year is maybe pretty little liars summer school the spinoff of pretty little liars maybe euphoria which is not coming back in 2024 and is obviously a sam levinson millennial aimed joint uh for but millennials who want to think i don't know you don't know that you think that because millennial and gen x tv critics say that this is the gen z show i don't know if that's i don't necessarily believe that that's know. true i mean so my the, point here is the, like based on the ratings yeah. alone there are so many people watching euphoria you'd have to assume a percentage of them are yeah. teenagers okay so maybe there's one maybe there is one show and but, the same is well, true of the House I'm of just Dragons wondering, and, the and my Last question to you guys, well, that's what I don't totally disagree. I mean, I, I, di I do disagree with that. I, I disagree that just because the numbers are in the millions means lots and lots of younger people who HBO needs to convert into prestige television watchers are actually watching these shows. I don't think that these shows reach out and try and convert Gen Z viewers. And I think what's missing from HBO and a lot of these streamer slates, and correct me if you guys think I'm wrong, but like, where are the young writers and the young creators? And when I asked Casey Blois about why don't you make shows for Gen Z? Are you trying to do this? I was a little nicer about it. Um, he said, like, they want to make four quadrant shows. They don't want to make shows for specific demographics. But am I crazy? Like, that's the wrong way to get people to keep watching TV for the next 30 years. If you just do four quadrant, if crazy. you just appeal to Alan Steppenwalls of the world, then these younger people who have other platforms like Twitch and TikTok and YouTube, they're not going to show up for traditional television. Now you can but, just, what, do you, what is the most memeable show in the last 10 years? What show is we the can't most think about the last 10 years. We can't think about the old ways that we engage with I'm television online. Succession, Succession, which is the epitome of a show made for the Alan Sepinwalls in the world. Yeah, but it is the show that people are most fluent in on aside from the office i'm talking about like you know contemporary shows uh on tiktok on twitter mm, it is in no. the biggest stan accounts uh it is absolutely ubiquitous in the language of the type of audience i can tell you're we wrong because hbo that, you know what the most popular show is in well you first off get off twitter and go on tumblr and then you'll <laughs> see that probably the most popular like gen z clicking show is either our flag means death which is probably getting canceled. Which HBO has. Which is probably mm -hmm, getting canceled. Which he would, at this presentation, someone asked like, oh, where's the season three announcement? He's like, eh, it might not make sense. <laughs> which is pretty pretty sad. That's uh, kind of blunt of him, actually. It's impressive. Or or I would say the, uh, what's the Neil Gaiman uh, Amazon uh, Good Omens um, is, I think, huge sure. on, on Tumblr. And then like a different, but David, to use Succession as a point i think is very millennial on twitter of you and that's kind of what i'm getting away from where it's like our bubble here is is what casey lloyd believes in but i actually don't think it's aimed at converting younger kids into tv watchers my argument would be that the hbo brand has always been the bubble that then becomes something that appeals widely that's what the sopranos was that's what sex in the city was that's what succession was i, see you, so you, I see you getting ready to interrupt me and i want you to stop <laughs> i think they are continuing to define their brand and prestige which is what doesn't exist on tiktok and twitch like you're not going to get people to turn off tiktok by trying to make a show that feels more like them being on tiktok you make something that feels different that cannot exist yeah. on these other platforms that's what oppenheimer did like that's what fucking five nights at freddy's yeah. does like patrick's thinking like a fucking executive quality. which is the irony here like you're you're thinking think like these people trying tail. to chase the yeah exactly that's what like 
the re the way you make good shit, the way you become HBO is doing the exact opposite of that, just by making good shit and assume that the audience but, the, but no we're aligned on that point will come to you we're aligned on that point because i don't see that in the shows i think in this ip era of this four quadrant era what they're missing is actually investing in what you're talking about katie which is going to like very unique creators what what was missing I mean, from the conversation got a Park Chan Wook show coming up in the spring like they're yes, doing it this is an old person this is what i'm saying they don't work with young people <sighs> That's these, these streamers reductive. don't work with young people. What are you talking like, say, about? I mean, you're not going to get a 25-year-old to be in charge of a show. Like, Lena Dunham is the one exception to that rule. Like, Sam show, Levinson what, what, is their young person. What network show on? Yeah. Like, yeah, so the, where is the next girls from a young creator? How, I don't know. Young people like industry. We're talking how about right now, in, not 10 years ago. Let's be clear. Industry is on right now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's incredible. Patches like, is off his fucking rocker. I hope Casey boys have walked up to you and smacked you in the face. <laughs> I just feel like when you're like, we have to make things that'll get people to stop paying attention to TikTok. It's like you just make something good. And like not everyone you're in the world is going to watch the White Lotus. The White Lotus obviously has a bubble, but the White Lotus has staying power. It has value to HBO it's, that exists. It's, it's, beyond. And young people will eventually get to this stuff. They got I think to Netflix the, the the kind of thinking that puts TV in trouble in the first place. That is so incorrect. Damn. That's no, so incorrect. No. You're, because you're a, what a, I'm a shame actually on all no, this entire podcast. No, because what I'm actually advocating for is working with younger people and, and giving them budgets and creative freedom to create the next unique, not studio noted to death television show that doesn't have I think to check all the boxes. I think boxes. what you're looking for is industry, which is on HBO yeah. now. I'm, I don't know how old the other creators are. I'm looking at a picture of them. They look like younger 17. than me. Yeah, like they look <laughs> like children. Uh, I think like that HBO, I mean, Netflix is making things that appeal to young people, but like that thing is like Wednesday, what? which is made by ancient gremlin Tim Burton. Like it's, you know, the <laughs> things that are good are what will work. It doesn't. I mean, I don't I want young people to be able to create things, but I think the idea that you just have to hand the reins to young people and otherwise you're giving up on a young audience entirely is really reductive. I'd say I, I the one thing that was on the... Oh, go, Dave, go. Oh, it sounds like an advertising problem to me because I think the shows are good, but like people show up to Barbie and Oppenheimer if they're young because they hear about Barbie, Barbenheimer. People wear tuxes to the minions. If you could have a social event mm. that pushes yeah. your show... That's what you, you just need to do that once and they'll stick with the show if it's good. There was an I article get... today about how, you know, that had a very particular sort of not agenda, but a very particular angle and was looking for evidence to back that angle up. But about how studios are succeeding by sort of going around traditional routes of marketing and just going to TikTok influencers and whatnot um, to get the word out. And that was a big reason why Barbie was successful and so on. Um, and this, yeah, just to echo what Dave was saying, like that sounds what Patch is talking about, and he's talking about it to the wrong person and coming at it from the wrong point of view. And uh, I think he should be killed. The one thing oh. that's on the the max slate for next year that I do think is a little forward thinking is is being in business with Gerard Carmichael, who did a sure. stand up special last year, and he has a new docu series that they're doing that's just like him going back home to his family and being like, I'm a black gay man uh no one wants me <laughs> like his family cannot accept him for being a gay man um and oh but patches he was born in 1987 like he might be no. too old for what you're looking for yeah. mm. I, I know that you're mm. feeling the existential crisis here as you hope that you're right <laughs> but you're wrong um and in, mean... a, and in an era where like young people watch more anime than sports and traditional television and where they are watching tremendous amounts of like creator driven TikTok, YouTube content. I'm all sure. I'm saying is like, I'm not saying that HBO needs to sell out or that they need to take the analytic data dump and make shows that are trying to en be engineered for Gen Z in some uh, very lame way. I, I guess I'm saying just like, I'm looking at this slate and seeing a lot of old school thinking and kind of four quadrant IP drivel and wondering why anyone thinks that young people just automatically show up for the for the dc spinoff series um, oh i mean I, w I wouldn't argue that i also think yes. the idea of like who's getting handed the keys to a show and who is giving power to create things is going to get really fucked in the next year or so post strike so like 
this may look even worse six months from now. Um, we may all be calling you correct. Yeah. And on the IP drivel scale, uh, I agree that there's a little bit too much of that in the HBO lineup. Uh, but, you know, we've been reading recently in these articles about how Marvel is in trouble. It confirmed what, you know, all of us were able to sort of surmise and what people like Dave have already done deep research into that they were oversaturating the brand and diluting it you know, in ways that were sort of irrevocable just to goose stock prices. Uh, and that has been so much worse um, on non-linear television, uh, you know, on streamers than it is on HBO proper that like the fact that they have a House of Dragons show and that like The Last of Us is now their killer app, uh, it, it doesn't strike the same note of concern for me. What's up at HBO? Why isn't Gen Z watching TV? This and more on future fighting in the war rooms. <laughs> we arguing about this for I mean, ever, I'm, probably. I'm, I'm going to be happy to get back to that hot D. What? That's uh, House of the Dragon. Are oh. you, though? Oh, man. We saw the trailer. I mean, and I'm like, what is going? This is more they of the same. production. It's they were so like, we have finished scripts. It's fine. And I it's like the, the first season. That's what that's what that world is. I look, look. George R. R. Martin's never finished a series, as far as I could tell, so uh, I'm happy to just get conclusions. This week, uh, both Katie and I digested uh, Britney Spears's memoir, The Woman in Me, uh, as read by Michelle Williams, because I definitely audiobooked it. I, I don't know about you, Katie. I no, think that's you what I, I'm not quite done yet, but I'm yeah in the process of listening to it now. Okay, yes. I definitely recommend audiobook, because uh, Michelle Williams uh, definitely gets the purpose of Britney Spears's uh, writing, which is very excellently probably ghostwritten, but either way... It is so a kind fantastic, of all over the place, even if it is ghost-written. It, it goes in lots of different places and uh, spends very little time on some things I'm very interested in, and then a lot of time, uh, rightly so, uh, in the hell of her conservatorship uh, for the back half of the book. Uh, but yeah, I really enjoyed it. The reason why I had to pick it up um, is I have... That, that was a period of time where I was trying to get into working on the internet, and uh, immediately out of college, uh, not being able to have a, a steady job, was doing some gossip blogging in peak uh, Britney Spears hounding era. I have a very specific memory of getting a haircut and getting a call from my editor being like, she's in an ambulance, get on the site now. And so having to leave uh, with half a haircut to uh, report on Britney Spears. Jesus. Yeah. Um, so I was like, I want to see what happened and look back. And, I, you know have hoped that she's okay ever since I learned more about her conservatorship. And uh, it seems like she found her peace um, uh, eventually in uh, who she is, the woman she has become after overcoming some obstacles. But I was very interested specifically in this book, how uh, you basically get a through line from uh, Justin Timberlake treating her poorly at the end of her relationship to the end of her story. I don't know how far you've gotten, Katie, but I was surprised how late in the book Justin Timberlake is still popping up. Yeah, uh, she keeps to... bringing him up, and she lumps him and Kevin Federline together after a while, which I think is interesting, because she like jumped from one relationship to another, and she was like, they treated me terribly in these very similar ways. And then, of course, she starts talking later in the book about meeting her husband, uh, Sam Asgari, and by the time the book came out, they were broken up, and I'm like, oh, Brittany, this pattern's happening again, and Is you don't Brittany know it! Okay. Like, everyone, we had this moment where she was obviously in the conservatorship, and mm -hmm. everyone was like... 13 years this was woman that moment. needs to be free, and free Britney, but, like, is Britney okay? Because I feel like... She was never going to be okay. That was yeah. dis dissolved. Like, she's constantly blowing up for the wrong reasons on social media, and, like, she... From reading this book, do you have a sense of, like, what's wrong? With Britney, it feels not like to she be condemning of that behavior, but I'm just like something is wrong, right? 
It feels like the experience of child stardom stunted her emotional development in really significant ways and her ability to make good decisions and kind of recognize what is a good decision to control impulses, like a lot of stuff that you would expect from a teenager, even in a way that even in the way that she talks. But then the thing about this conservatorship is like she gets older and older as the thing goes on and she's still so deeply limited by it. So being freed from, from this conservatorship is like the only ethical choice, but also her ability to make her own decisions is still really challenged. Like she needs really good people who will empower her, but also look out for her because she's been famous since she was 15. She like doesn't have the judgment that normal people have, which is why child, why Charles Thurlow should be illegal. But that's my soapbox yeah. for later. No, it's, it's really interesting because <laughs> there isn't a character in the book. I would say where she's like, and then I turned to this person. They always told me the truth. No, absolutely uh, anybody, not. It's so fucked. It's, so it's like, she's still, uh, you know, I'm glad somebody convinced her to write a book and make some money off of herself. Uh, but like, uh, she's still probably going to make horrible decisions, but that's, they're her decisions now. And hopefully she at least feels better about them. Uh, the conservatorship, the way it's presented in this book is absolutely horrifying because she makes sure to, even before Justin Timberlake goes along, comes along, just like lay some track that she does not like her family and her family doesn't seem to like her very much. And so uh, reading this story, knowing that it's going to have a back half where <laughs> she is put in their control is uh, pretty terrifying. And then it's yeah. pretty terrifying when it happens to her and uh, just sort of keeps escalating to the point where at one point she's like, I thought they were going to kill me. And I know now that that's probably Brittany's perspective on it, but that doesn't make any less real for yeah. her. So well, I finally even got to be back in Britney Spears' head after a little while. and having more uh, life under my belt. So it's, it's yeah. terrifying. Even in that period you're talking about where she was like winding up in the ambulance and when the conservatorship began, like I certainly didn't process how young her children were. Like she had like a less than year old baby when like the head shaving stuff happened. And like she kind of talks like very vaguely. She's like, I know now that that was postpartum depression. Like it's interesting how she kind of like glances at like therapy talk and things and then kind of moves away from it. But when you like realize how vulnerable she was in that period specifically that led to that conservatorship, it like it's really heartbreaking. And the Michelle Williams reading of it really adds to it, I think. Like I think it makes her weird, like casual language in the sides and like calling her sister a bitch for like not wanting to go to her vacation house. Like it all kind of fits into a whole because she sort of sounds like Britney Spears, but sort of doesn't, but just has like kind of the ability to knit all of those different tones together. So I've never listened to an audiobook in my life. This might uh, be the one to start what? with. No, it's not. It's really? not going to be. Uh, I, I I like to read with my my eyes um, and listen. If I'm listen listening to, to anything, it's of Check course Fighting in the War Room, the finest <laughs> entertainment podcast. Um, but uh, so I I can't really speak to, and maybe you guys can how common it is to have such a uh you know sort of a generational actor uh reading one of these roles uh one of these books rather um as opposed to like a professional like uh the guy who did all the harry potter books and these people who have always sort of made their living with their voices first and foremost oh, I mean, but is is there a possibility that this starts some kind of trend of like a-list actors and actresses memoirs they already do that I mean, I mean that. here's the thing you you pay those people as right. somebody who recently had to decide who was going to read an audiobook. Would I have liked Michelle Williams to read the MCU? Absolutely. Would I had to have paid her basically like half of what I got paid? Probably. <laughs> so like uh, yeah. it's a, it's I mean, I, who knows? Um, <laughs> but there are people, you know, like I'm uh, I want to do Patrick Stewart's memoir and audio next because he actually reads it. And I'm like, who doesn't want to? hear Patrick Stewart for 13 hours talk about his life. Uh, but usually um, I, I like audiobooks that if it's like a celebrity memoir, the celebrity reads it uh, that I brought up earlier this year, the Honey Baby Mine, that's uh, Laura Dern mm -hmm. and Diane Ladd sort of talking about their actual talks. And that sort of makes it sort of theatrical. But Katie's right. Michelle Williams does so much more to help you empathize with this. I think if you were reading uh, with your eyes, as David put it, um, uh, there would be some odd tones that pop yeah. up um, because Britney Spears uh, definitely seems to think nonlinearly now. Uh, yeah. So I'm glad someone 
roped it She's in and for time. then he is yeah, Dr. Mich- Strange. Michelle Williams, Michelle Williams helps you uh, interpret uh, what Britney Spears is like putting down. So I would actually recommend the audiobook for this one. Besides, it's like, yeah, she's a pro. She's yeah. doing acting. It is with a really the Britney it Spears is memoir. A great performance. Do straight you, up. Uh, so to, to wrap up, and with all due respect to all all of us here, I don't think any of us will ever write an autobiography or a, a memoir. Some would say that every review I write is a chapter in my autobiography. I mean, it's really <laughs> long enough. Um, do you think that you have the notes to be able to write an autobiography? Do you think you could write your autobiography? I'm just always amazed that people remember all this shit. Yeah, that's my biggest impediment, other than the fact that no part of my existence could even meet the lowest threshold of interest required for someone to uh, put together an autobiography is that I just don't remember shit. Like, and I, I actually remember all this. I cynically tend to think, I mean, with Britney Spears, life is so well documented. I, that's, there are plenty that's the thing. Research for yeah. her to draw from, but I tend to cynically think when I do read uh, an autobiography, I'm reading Werner Herzog's autobiography right now. And he is sort of a famous uh, self mythologizer. Uh, but it, that only sort of increases my feeling, my suspicion when I read a lot about autobiography, autobiographies that people are, um, you know, making things up, mishmashing their memories sure. and uh, using the ecstatic truth. The sort of wood, I'm sure eventually yeah. this book does say. <laughs> yeah. um, I have relatively good diaries, but they're all very like today. I went to saw this screening of this movie and then I went home and I recorded the podcast. So like, I don't know that that is the stuff an autobiography is made of. Yeah, exactly. It's gonna be fascinating for no one, not even my children when I am dead. Uh, So yeah, I don't think I got it. I I have blogs through college. I wrote an autobiography in fifth grade and then I wrote another one in eighth grade. So I think using those pieces. Oh yeah, that'll help you remember your childhood. I'd be able to assemble. My eighth grade one was so bad, I don't think I ever, like, did anything besides, like, printed out once. Uh, I, I don't remember what was in it, but there was a chapter called Sex, and I'm like, what the fuck was that chapter <laughs> <Wow>. even about? <laughs> uh, so, I was gonna get you, you know, put on a list. I mean, please, please don't. This is pre-college. Yeah, the New York Times I'm, bestseller list. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he already got hey, there, hey, buddy. Hey, congratulations. Uh, but yeah. Uh, Women to Be by Britney Spears. Uh, definitely more interesting than any of our autobiographies. Uh, check it out if you want to know about Britney Spears. This week, we somehow convinced Katie to watch When Evil Lurks, a movie I've been anxious <laughs> to watch because it has been described in extremely grotesque terms and extremely hardcore horror brain terms. This is the new movie from Damien Rognat. It's now on Shudder. Uh, it is supernatural. It is psychological. It is Story. We're going to get into the details here about why I can't believe Katie watched it. And Katie, you better not be about to say you you bailed or you no, didn't, I watch didn't bail. It. I, you I mean, better I have done your homework thing. here. Like I didn't like do like the eyes like pinned open thing, but I I watched it. Uh, I, I was anxious to, to see this because this week I also watched Five Nights at Freddy's, which I know. David, did you see Five Nights at Freddy's? The, the, the hit phenomenon horror movie of the moment i haven't even seen a full poster <laughs> for that movie in the subway i avert my eyes uh yes it's a it's a it's a juggernaut every speaking of the gen z audience they all show all the 14 year olds uh showed up this uh past weekend to go see this movie based on a video game where oh my fucking god it's the most boring 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 movie <laughs> I've seen in ages. My God, wa- nothing happens. I watched the first 25 minutes and I assumed that was just the boring part, but you're saying no, it's all boring. It, feel, it, it, it feels like, ah, oh God, I don't even know what to compare it to. It is all the trauma bits 
of all the past like three years of bland trauma driven horror movies and then for some reason the big puppets show up at the end and like clamp some people there's no it's so good it should be so goofy these big animatronic chucky e. cheese dolls should be chasing people from minute one for like 80 minutes tops and somehow this movie is two hours long and Josh Hutcherson sounds like you're describing a film called Chopping Mall, which we might have a chance to discuss <laughs> in a future episode. <laughs> um, it it was god awful. I I couldn't believe it. Staggering that it made so much money, and that you know young people have such nostalgia for this property and are obsessed with it on a, like an Easter egg YouTube breakdown video level. Like that, it it was so huge. It's so popular. Um, I'm not saying Gen Z is always right about the things they want. I'm just saying people should cater to them once in a while. Get them off of for Five Nights at Freddy's. Make something for them, well, please. Well, That's none good. of them are subscribing to Peacock, clearly, because they all bought tickets to go see it in theaters exactly. instead of watching it on Peacock. See, they don't watch these streamers. They don't convert <laughs> these kids. God. Um, anyway, the good news is there was actually a very good or very interesting. I'll be curious what where you all fall on this movie uh, when evil lurks. This was a palate cleanser for me. At least it woke me the fuck up. And and went some places. Uh, I'll dip really quickly into what this movie is about, and and then I want to hear definitely Katie, but everybody reacting to, <laughs> to this movie. It premiered at TIFF. Uh, it played a little while at theaters, and now it's on Shutter. It is. Uh, it's 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 kind of murky where this sets up. I think in um, the beginning of the film, these two brothers, Pedro and Jamie, are investigating um, this this. Death that's happened, this murder that they discovered, and uh, lo and behold, like what's really happening with this guy who's dead is he was trying to cure another man who is possessed by something known as the rotten and is kind of a demon that is trying in to... there. <laughs> yeah, I, I, was, I, I, I was about to say, I like finally representation for me a big bloated man vomiting bile <laughs> that's and the rotten um this rotten thing is kind of a demon that's trying to be born it's possessing people so that it can finally take its its final form these guys seem to be very familiar with the rotten i think the mythology of this film is, is interesting we should talk about a little bit like how much we get uh, and how much you were all able to grasp during it, but like yeah, they're not like holy fuck, there's a demon possessed. And they're like, oh yeah, they're like, mm, oh, no, they're, no. the rotten's back. <laughs> like we gotta get. <laughs> yeah. And there's a lot of rules for like you can't shoot the rotten possessed people with a gun. And there's a grandma character, luckily, who's describing all of these rules yeah, at some point to tell you everything's going on. Um, I never understood if the rotten like jumps from host to host or if it like can stay. And then jump into another person, and like they're both infected. I didn't fully. Well, they're grasp worried about that. getting rotten goo on their hands and being touched by it. So it's obviously passing through people. Yeah. And then like they could also go from man to to dog, which does sure multiple to, or other animals. But it can like goats, linger on your. It can linger on your clothes, and then yeah, like it's gross. Say a dog licks your clothes. I believe that in a, an interview on on Polygon, the the director talked about like this movie being a pesticide metaphor. I didn't really dip into that too far and like mm. get in that explanation, but there's a whole thing happening there that there's, there's, there's real life to be figured out. I think this is an Argent, it's taking place in Argentina, right? Like an Argentinian film. Um, so there's a whole backstory there that yes. I, I, you know, you don't get that if you don't know anything about it, there's plenty on the bone here to, to gnaw at. Uh, anyway, as these brothers are discovered, they find this dead body in the beginning who turns out to be a cleaner, someone who is supposed to be able to dispose of the rotten. A lot of rules here. But I got to say, like, this is a pretty visceral experience for all the mythology that when Evil Lurks is setting up. This is very much like, oh, there's a there's a it follows type thing that is creeping between possessions and we don't know exactly where it is or what's being possessed. And unfortunately, a lot of people are going to be possessed from the beginning and to the end of this movie. And a lot of people are going to die. And a lot of gruesome shit is going to happen. So my question for you guys that really kicked this off is like, this movie goes so hard. It is so disgusting. And there's a lot of child murder. So I was very curious, Katie, how you were feeling about it, too, uh, being um, a mother of children. 
Um, does it go uh, hard yeah, with intent? Does it go hard with purpose? Is it fulfilling? Is it fun? Like, what is this movie at the end of the day for you guys? Like, fun is a real overstatement. A Although I would say, like, you know, I get through like the first chunk of the movie with the rotten, which is like very obviously gross, but like the tone of the movie is very like, and then this is gonna happen, and then this is gonna happen, and I'm like, okay, all right, like, well, who are these guys? What are we doing? And then when it really kind of picked up energy for me was when you get to the house with the two kids in it and the dog, and just like the sense of like building of like oh god are they gonna do this and then they do it and it's like like worse than you imagine but also impressive um but then it kind of felt like it was bludgeoning me by the end like the grossness the like despair of it like it's so grim like there's just no real shred of hope or lightness in the entire thing and that kind of weighed on me after a while like not even that like i found it depressing and gross which i did but i was just like like wanted to get out of there in a way that <laughs> I feel like a lot of horror movies and I like like tolerate them. Like there's at least like the thrill, like the sense of like where are they going to go next with this? And I, I kind of lost that by the end of this. Interesting. I didn't know it was about pesticide. I'm going to have to read some <laughs> polygon.com. But what I did get is uh, this is a evil that is lurking as the mm -hmm. title tells me. It does lurk. It has a bunch of very specific rules to beat it that these people are incapable of following because they're inconvenienced by their own fear. So that I think is great. If it's about pesticide, if it's about government, if it's about racism, that's COVID. a great theme where it's like COVID where it's like, Hey, we have these rules in order to defeat this, this evil, uh, just follow the rules. And people are like, no, my son, I can save him. I can break the rule. And it's yeah. just like, well, that's, that's how far that's, that's the evil. Uh, I really enjoyed it as a uh, non-Christianity or non-Catholicism-based possession movie. I uh, was very interested sort of in the mythology it was building in terms of, yeah, you were talking about it could like throw evil out there, but it's really evil that's protecting the rotten because the rotten is the one that needs to be brought to fruition to give birth to the demon at the very, very end. Wait, so, yeah. uh, so it's when they like they drive the rotten out on his truck. The evil spreads to one of his goats. And that's like the secondary evil that starts hopping around and uh, doing things. Which does includes... it like stay in the goat? Like, I think well, he shoots the goat, which you're not supposed to do. And then it jumps to him and then his wife. But then like it goes into the dog and then it goes into the girl. But does like the dog transport it to the girl or is it still in the dog? No, I think it's still in the dog. Like so, it can okay. spread to multiple because by the time Got we it. get to the the kids protecting the rotten, right, it's all, all kids. those yeah, kids. That's true. Okay. Uh, Man, I also that's love, creepy. I also love the tool, yeah, of using kids. And basically, by the time we get to that, you know, third act, uh, the kids are all telling him sort of what he wants to hear, and uh, the grandma who knows what's going on is like, "Don't listen to the fucking kids. That's it." <laughs> and uh, he can't. He can't. It's you gotta listen to the, the kids. woman's the, the woman's been through it. The woman has given up her life to be a cleaner herself. And she's like, if you run, you just have to run and leave everything behind because otherwise it'll find you. And maybe this evil has come to find her. But yeah, there's just so many rules that seem like it would be possible. Uh, but uh, this is what an, a classic horror movie in the sense that they don't know they're in a horror movie throughout the whole thing. But at some point, if they just would have been like, man. You know, listen, listen to the cleaner and maybe uh, you could do stuff. I don't know what that says about how much of your family you're supposed to just let go to evil. That's one of the things I was thinking about when this movie ended is was there a good time to like, you know, off his autistic son mm. or was that just going to happen? Uh, you know, that's that sort <laughs> of uh, question. You kind of threw that out there, but like to Katie's point, there's like there's a lot of layers to this movie, right? And a lot of, a lot of peril when we meet these characters or when we, when the one um, who we're following most of the time, who I think is, is that, is it Jamie or, or no, Pedro is the I one. Pedro. Pedro is the one with a family who we discover kind yeah. of early on in the movie is living on his own, but he has kids and now he's breaking a restraining order to go see his kids and rescue them because he wants to get out of town before the rotten is affecting everything. So not only are you having this disease, this demon infecting people, 
but you have the added tension of like bad dad maybe and screaming mother who just wants to protect her kids from this guy who just seems stark raving mad uh and then also this demon <laughs> like is gonna show up whenever things are boiling over and this is like so much madness going on in this movie and and to to shed a little light on the what the conversation was that we did with the director on polygon which was you know the the pesticide angle here is really about how i believe in, in argentina like these pesticides would spread and you would get in, they would go far beyond where they were where they were put down and and suddenly you would just have this thing on your farm or in this land and these kids would be infected and there's just no way to save people and you would hear about deaths and 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 then no one know, would know what to do and this movie is you can't call it an exorcism movie it's a possession movie without the exorcist right like they don't mm. That's what they, in the beginning of the movie, this guy who's dead is the exorcist who's supposed to be at the end of the movie saving the day in every other kind of horror movie except he's dead. So what do you do about the possession if your exorcist is dead? It's an interesting conceit and just absolutely, as you said, Katie, it is bludgeoning, which maybe is the bigger question yeah. for us to talk about, which is like, is, is it entertainment value or do you, is this operating on the kind of like, just dramatic level where the Lars von Trier hit you so hard that you're, you're feeling something like what is the, the value of a story like this um, where it just goes so, so hard. I, I don't know. I, I, I got something out of it. I guess I was entertained by just his willingness to let a dog bite a child's head or let uh, <laughs> a mother be eating a kid's brains or something like I hope none of this sounds like spoilers because I don't think I could do it justice. But there's just a lot happening. Um, and I wonder what the value is. And that, that's, that mm, sounds dismissive. That's an interesting, yeah, but, wondering what the, what the value is. That feels uh, like a big question to ask. But you're like not a person? horror person. So I would imagine uh, the me. line for you is like tough uh, figuring out like, is this good? For, like why? Yeah, no, the, is this, it is tough. What's the quality here? I mean, I think the like grossness of the design of the rotted is like pretty incredible. Like it's so awful. Like I'm impressed by how they have put that together. And like, I think, you know, I get like after you get to like kind of that dog attack sequence, like they're all together in a car, like escaping, like you're kind of getting into the zombie movie format that feels familiar. And then it kind of like turns it on its head by just going so uh, pivoting so much into despair. Um, and I did kind of watch it the whole time being like, I assume this is a political metaphor that I don't understand because I'm not from Argentina. <laughs> Pesticides is not what I saw coming. Um, I mean, I'm interested to watch because like horror, you can like get a sense of a filmmaker's craft so easily because so much of the effectiveness of horror depends on craft. So like, I now know about this filmmaker. I will like watch out for what he does next. But like, I wouldn't tell anyone to watch this movie, like unless they're just like a horror person who's like, I want to see how I can you know, this genre that I feel like I've seen a million times can be done differently. Um, that has a lot of value that doesn't quite, isn't quite there for me. Which is okay. I think it's, it justifies how gross it is because at one point it's described that like it's feeding off of your fear. So all those things, patches you described or the axe to the face kill, which I almost came up to describing and now I'm mentioning, uh, those sort of things, uh, they're like literally what could the character, what would the character think is the worst thing to happen in this moment or the mom eating the kid's brains? What's the worst thing for that guy to see at this moment? Mm. Um, and I like it. It defines evil in a very specific non-religious, non-political uh, way. It's like, this thing is evil because it is going to do the worst thing to you to make you afraid and maybe take over your body. And I think that's a great way to do evil. It's the same reason why, you know, people like Stephen King's It, uh, the, 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 the monster that feeds on you being afraid or feeds on your fears can manifest so much differently than other things, but it's also a very pure manifestation of just like, that's bad. It's bad because it feeds on your fears. It's going to make the worst thing happen to you uh, because and it's going to draw it out because it wants you to be afraid. That's effective horror, I think. So I would recommend this to people who uh, probably are more 
ready for extreme gore all of a sudden because uh, be it an axe to the face or a dog that suddenly decides it's going to go for the child uh this movie really just sort of pops off or even with one of like the last kills where it's like you're pretty sure what this person is dead but this little kid keeps hitting her on the head with a hammer as they're dragging her off and i'm just like oh Oh, she was dead already. <laughs> uh, if you get enjoyment out of those things, like me, because I know I'm watching a horror movie, uh, this is like absolutely for you. I don't think it's like the most extreme horror I've ever seen. Um, uh, and it it's, gets to a certain extent, uh, like just so out there that I'm able to like disassociate by the time, by the time we reconnect with the rotten, I'm like, yeah, that's cool. Like, let's see more of that costume and guy, and then what happens to the rotten, I think, is also kind of cool. Um, so I I was kind of expecting, given some of the reaction, that it was going to be more visually extreme, but I think it's actually just an extreme movie because of where it leaves you uh, yeah. with all the characters at the end. Because of the uh, emotional deadness inside. <laughs> yep. It it definitely ended and i was like oh i was expecting maybe one more scene but that's a great place to to throw it throw it in yeah I, I think to wrap up like what's exciting to me about the movie which i don't think is perfect like it still has a bit of a low budget sheen to it and and yeah i i think it's very savvy and and it's it's all about the mood though it's all about this like world that this guy has created and what excites me about this director and at least the fact that in 2023 we can make a movie that feels surprising like the i thought a lot about the last of us watching this movie being like i wish the last of us not didn't have to push the gore necessarily in the way that this movie did it didn't have to be extreme but like i just didn't know what was going to happen here like i didn't feel like i was mm -hmm. on rails and because of we killed the exorcist in the first scene what could possibly happen next or like I don't know exactly what the mythology is. So it could bounce to a goat. It could bounce to a, a dog. It could bounce to another person. A child could be like ripping out of someone's body. Bloat man. Just bloat man showing up <laughs> all over this movie. Uh, I just thought there were so many aspects of it. Like, not that I hadn't seen it before or something, but like, I just didn't know where it was all going, where I'm watching Last of Us. And even with its own mythology, and I had never played those games. And I still felt like because of tropes and because of, uh, it just felt familiar, and yeah, I I wish I wish more th movies could like pull back on the mythology, have it all seemingly spelled out, but not reveal mm. it all. Um, fun. I had fun not knowing where I was going with this one. Yeah, I love evil. Lurking. What evil lurks? Yeah, yeah, you know, better at lurking than be right up here. Uh, that's that's what I'd say. <laughs> let it stay. Let it stay on the periphery. Keep your distance. <laughs> uh, yeah, when evil lurks, it's on Shutter now. Check it out if uh, we, anything we said sounded interesting to you. If you're less like me. <laughs> Welcome to my world. Bitch. Uh, that does it for this week's show. David had to bail, but he'll he'll be back as well. Uh. Next week's the quarter quell, right? Yeah. You just play, tell them. Tell, tell them people. the movies. Tell uh, them the movies so they can watch the. Do movies. we want to reveal the theme, or are we going to just list four movies and have people have to puzzle? Uh, I don't think. About. I don't think we have to be secretive. We'll, okay. We have each picked movies that we think that one of us would not like on paper. <laughs> like you hear the concept of it. You know what? I'm going to make the guessing game. Who got which title? Okay. Uh, so we we picked movies for each other as a challenge. The titles are Dirty Harry. Starring Clint Eastwood. Uh, Chopping Mall, about killer mall robots. Uh, Millennium Actress, the anime that I don't know anything else about. And mm. uh, shit, what's the fourth one? And Wonder, the Jacob Tremblay joint from uh, <laughs> I wonder which one's Katie's. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I don't know. You, you, hit, uh, you hit a movie called Chopping Mall, too. You never know. Anyway, um, we'll be, we're watching those. We'll be talking about them next week for... Uh, Every episode 450? Good mm -hmm. lord. Num numerically, uh, we're probably higher than that, but n in terms of the numbers. Uh, many of these are available to stream. You should watch them along with us. So we'll be back then. In the meantime, tell the people who you are. I'm Matt Patches, executive editor over at Polygon. I'm on 
Twitter, I mean X, formerly known as Twitter. I'm on Letterboxd, <laughs> Blue Sky. It's all Mr. Patches. We have a website, fightinginthewarroom.com, where you can listen to us talk about probably all the old HBO shows that are good for, <laughs> for everybody. Even if you're a Gen Z, uh, you could go watch those, those HBO shows. They're forever. Uh, fightinginthewarroom.com. Uh, he was David Ehrlich. He is the chief film critic or head film critic at IndieWire. He's at IndieWire where he's a film critic and he's very good at it. You can follow him on Twitter at David Ehrlich. Uh, you can also leave us a review on the iTunes podcasting app. It is uh, not a great app to leave reviews, but that does help us get pushed in front of other people for recommendations or really in any app that you're listening to us on. A review would help us out a lot. You can also email us at FITWR podcast at gmail.com i'm dave gonzalez you can follow me on twitter or x as as da7e or also on blue sky as da7e and uh yeah uh i'm katie rich a bit vanity fair and on little gold men where we talked about we did kind of a, a fall tv preview this week um so you can hear us talk about some hbo stuff coming up uh people are saying true detective is really good i'm excited um you can find i'm on x some um, blue sky more these days both of them at katie rich uh we're all we're in both places at fitwr where you can talk to us about uh why patches is wrong about what you do wants to watch or you can answer this week's second round <laughs> question which was in honor of priscilla who is your favorite entertainer spouse thanks for listening and we'll be back talking to you next week Bum, 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 bum,